Hey everyone, and welcome to the Capitalize for Kids podcast, where we interview Canadian leaders in business and philanthropy. This week, we spoke with Harris Fricker, the CEO of GMP Capital. We had a pretty wide-ranging conversation with Harris. Uh, we spoke to him about his blue-collar upbringing in the East Coast, how he broke into Bay Street, founding a company with Elon Musk, and what he sees as the future of investment banking and blockchain. I know that we certainly enjoyed this conversation with Harris, and we hope you do as well. Here it is. I did an undergrad at St. Max, and I remember uh, my first year at X, I couldn't pay my bill for, for the final. So I got a job working offshore construction. I was 18, and uh, I was the youngest person in that crew by a wide margin. <laughs> and, um, I, uh, I worked uh, endless hours that summer. Had a ball, really, because uh, I liked doing physical labor, and I was on an offshore rig. Uh, we were dredging uh, shipping channels uh, in the North Atlantic, so for, for large uh, ships to come up. Um, and uh, when I finally was able to pay my bill, they sent my marks to my mother, and uh, I, it turned out I was the top student at university, and they had granted me a scholarship, which would have paid for the next year, and yet I'd spent the entire summer working to get my marks to find out that I didn't need to be working. So I understood what Joseph Heller meant by the, the catch-22 and had a good laugh uh, over that. But good lessons learned, nonetheless, I'm oh, assuming fantastic. working uh, a blue-collar job for the summer, kind of getting uh, a true sense of, of what real life is like, so to speak. Yeah. So, so then I, 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 I went back to X and slowly but surely got over the inferiority of growing up in such a rural area um, and, um, you know, really began to uh, take advantage of interacting with people from a wide variety of backgrounds and uh, was lucky enough in, in the third year, was selected by the university to apply for a Rhodes Scholarship, um, which I did. And then, you know, look, the Rhodes Scholarship at the end of the day, there are so many qualified people. And I was lucky enough to win, and I, I underline lucky. Like, and that's not false modesty, that's just the truth. Um, I was shocked I won. And uh, What was that application like? It, you know what, it was like having an entire other course. Um, they take selection extraordinarily seriously. They've been doing it for a long time. Um, I think it started in 1904. Um, so yeah, it was a long process. There were several hurdles, and the final hurdle ended up with in-person interviews with the 12 of us. I think there was 169 starting that were in the queue, and then there was 12 of us at the final. And um, it was an incredible process, and that paved the way for me to do something, uh, you know, go to Oxford, uh, which would have been inconceivable. And if you think going from rural Cape Breton to St. Francis Xavier is intimidating. Try landing from, uh, from Nova Scotia uh, at Oxford as uh, you know, a freshly minted 22-year-old. Uh, that was quite a, quite a, quite a journey. Did you, did you find yourself once again facing that, that inferiority complex that you mentioned before when you were uh, starting at X? 100%. And, and you know what? One of the regrets I have is I... 
I didn't take as much advantage of the setting as I should have. Um, and I didn't want to embarrass, you know, my country or my region and, and not do well academically. I did well academically. I should have had more fun. And, uh, you know, I try to remind myself of that as certain iterations of my current gig is, you know, coming in in the morning, the one thing you'll do very easily is find out what problems there are <laughs> from the day before. Um, and you just got to remind yourself that's just part of the free flow of life. You got to find ways to have fun and hang out with people whose company you enjoy or life becomes a very dire, short experience. So Oxford was good. Should have done better on the, on the life experience side. Met some folks who are friends to this day. And it, um, you know, Oxford changed my notion of gravity. Um, I had a much stronger view of the power of, of gravity uh, growing up in terms of what was achievable. And at Oxford, I met kids who had a profoundly different relationship between, saw a profoundly different relationship between work and reward. And uh, so my, my idea of work and reward was linear. If you work till you were bleeding from under the armpits and you put in one unit of work, you'd get 1.1 unit of reward. And there I met kids who thought if you did one unit of work, you'd get 105 units of reward, which I was like blown away by. Um, and, and that, uh, transition of uh, the notion of upside and not to feel, you know, guilty at reward really started to impact me. That's a really interesting insight. And so that came, I'm assuming, from being in a small fishing village, you know, growing up blue collar, you kind of see that one input to 1.1 output. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the old, I grew up, I grew up, uh, a, you know, a traditional Catholic boy. So it was easier for a camel to walk through the eye of a needle than for a rich man through the gates of heaven. Um, so that was ingrained. And then uh, I started reading about Archimedes and his concepts of leverage, which I must say I use to this day. And his, he was famous for his quote give, quote, give me but a lever and a place to stand and I will move the earth. But the notion of leverage, um, leverage personally, how to take scarce time and make a quality impact, leverage financially, uh, leverage professionally, um, how to take an input of work and create um, nonlinear benefits in everything you do. So how did you apply that coming out of, out of Oxford? How did you, you, you kind of were now ingrained with that mentality, you know, kind of a shift in your thought. How did you go out into the world and, and start to apply that? I got to tell you, I had no aspirations with regards to business. Um, I never really knew anyone who was a business person growing up. Um, but I had bills to pay and, and, and I had been bitten by the bug of ambition I was originally going to work for a firm in New York, and uh, instead I ended up coming to Toronto. I worked uh, at Scotiabank in the chairman's office for, obviously the chairman was Cedric Ritchie, who was a legendary uh, bank CEO, 
and his, the guy who ran his office was a guy named Peter Nicholson, still one of the smartest people I've ever met, um, and Im Im imbibed with a real sense of joie de vie. And uh, Peter was my first real mentor uh, that taught me about where intellect and intellectual pursuits um, could cross over into business. And he was a, a philosopher, a computer scientist, um, with a very large brain, but an equally a large thirst for knowledge and life. And he was very impactful. So that was my first boss. So <laughs> what, do you, what do you mean by uh, how you can uh, blend intellectual and business pursuits? Like, what, what was an example of that that he did? Um, he and I are wired similarly in that if the thing isn't intellectually compelling to me, I get really bored. Um, so I always have to recreate some aspect of what I'm doing to engage my gray matter. And I try to use kind of my nat natural insecurities as strengths. So you're, you're never, look, you're ultimately never going to get away from some of the things that were ingrained into you as a youth when you were growing up. But like everything in life, your greatest weakness is also your greatest strength. So what that does to me is that causes me, even in my uh, early 50s, to still work, uh, you know, what most people would consider pretty hard. And that drives me because I never want to be that guy who's that glib, good minute, five minute opener, who after you get to minute six, you're literally losing your mind with how uninformed this cat is. Um, I'm not good enough to carry that off. I want to earn it. I, everything I do, I want to earn. So on the intellectual side, there were concepts that we were dealing with at Scotiabank, like lesser developed country debt, third world debt. That was one of the big issues at the time. And uh, we really got into the, to the, the concepts and trends underpinning that issue. And then that really drove some very, I think Scotia had the best thinking in, the, uh, in North American banking on how to deal with uh, the LDC debt. And, and that was borne out because they literally stayed in most of the countries they had the debts in and are still there, still in the community. And they had the lowest losses uh, of all the banks. So it was, a good, it was a good lesson that you could combine both. And even now what I do, I've been CEO here for, you know, almost nine years. I've been with the firm for, it'll be 17 years. And what I, what I do to keep myself uh, engaged is, uh, number one, I like people. So I'm always fascinated by the evolution of the people of the firm. Even though most people think uh, I'm a big grouch because I look a bit like a, a bull terrier. So it takes, it takes a while for people to understand that. My physicality does not go with my personality. Uh, I, I would never be disrespectful to another person. Um, so I do things iteratively, like when I saw blockchain evolving, um, I started, I, I actually was very interested in cryptography for a long time. So I understood a little bit about it. I originally got interested in blockchain because we were seeing technology, as you would expect, disintermediate the front end of our business. 
most notably trading, where trading used to be value add, now it's a commodity, you know, what's execution? So we were seeing that part of the business be disintermediated, as you would expect. With technology implementation goes reduction of friction, with reduction of friction goes reduction of price. So I started saying, well, you know, if that's the, if that's the inevitable uh, reality on the front end, as, as it should be, then where's the technology-driven savings on the back end? Why are we not seeing our cost drop on the back end? Well, lo and behold, we weren't seeing our cost drop on the back end because we had a bunch of highly entrenched monopolies or duopolies who did all the payments and processing uh, in the traditional world. Most of them are on this, these corners outside in the big banks. And they have zero incentive to ever drop price. So blockchain became interesting to me because it was a way to disrupt the current system that I think is in massive need of disruption. Um, because if it's kind of like what I, what I tell my kids when I go to certain parts of the world and I tell them that there are no power, no utility poles. And they go, well, you know, why are there no utility poles? And I go, well, when that part of the world came of age and was ready to go to the next inflection point, wireless was incredibly viable mm -hmm. in a way that, you know, 50 years before it was copper wire. And uh, if you were designing the world's financial system today, if distributed ledger technology were available to you, then you would have an entirely different financial system. That doesn't mean that the current system, you know, should be sledgehammered into oblivion. It means that parts of the world are going to evolve very rapidly uh, based on distributed ledger, blockchain. And our, our parts of the world are going to have to adapt to what's going to be the most profound disruption, certainly since Internet 1.0, because if Internet 1.0 was the first step change since the Gutenberg Press with the dissemination of information where we went from, you know, some monk uh, scribing an ancient book that was locked away, uh, kept away from the great unwashed in the Dark Ages, to uh, Gutenberg making information available to the masses, uh, Internet 1.0 made Internet available to millions of people simultaneously. And uh, people always say to me, because I was in the, we'll get to this, I guess, I was in Silicon Valley in, in uh, 99. Everyone thought I was nuts when I left my uh, then very high-paying senior position. And uh, I just couldn't resist it. Um, everyone thought I was nuts, but I, I fundamentally believed that that the Internet would change everything. And then when people say to me, yeah, but what did you think of the internet bubble? I keep going, what bubble? Mm. Of course, there's inevitable volatility, but you know, you look today, we have Airbnb, which is the largest accommodation player in the world, no, no hard assets. Uber, no hard assets. Facebook is the world's largest country, knows more about its citizens than any other country on earth, too much indeed. Um, and uh, it's happened. Now, the downside is the vision of the Internet's been a little bit hijacked and power is accumulated in the hands of a very few very powerful entities. It's going to be fascinating to watch and see what happens with how the evolution of blockchain and crypto with the underlying distributed ledger technology, that's all about uh, distributing decision-making. Uh, 
our entire society is based on amassing information and then information moves counterclockwise into a hole where a decision is made by a very small group of powerful people who have that information. Um, the notion that you're going to distribute information across the nodes of the network and the network in and of itself is going to become the decision maker through mathematics and algorithmics, that's pretty amazing. Um, it, it, it has huge implications because if you're a large entity that's built a client-facing database that you've spent billions of dollars on, we all know that database can be hacked tomorrow, um, how are you going to evolve and embrace uh, the inevitability of blockchain when your entire business model is based on proprietary information and centralized databases. That's what the, the, you know, the, the big entities in my world are facing. So again, to go back to my original point now that I've rambled on, um, blockchain interests me because it, it combines intellectual with business. Yeah. And I like disruption. And then, so, and, and on that point of why you like disruption is I'm assuming why you left your senior post in 99 to go to Silicon Valley. Yeah, and I like disruption because I'm the ultimate underdog, right? I'm a blue-collar uh, kid um, who people always assumed was dumber than I was because I, I looked like a heavily muscled Neanderthal at times. Um, and that, that combination of intellect, disruption, just a profound like for disruption, um, and work ethic, that's held me in pretty good stead. And where did, where did you end up in, in 99 when you went to Silicon Valley? Did you end there with a job? Was it kind of, let's yeah, just see what so it's it was, like? Yeah, so it was crazy. Uh, going back to Scotiabank, my old boss, Peter Nicholson, the guy from Scotiabank, called me up and said, I want you to meet this kid. And I said, sure. I met the guy. He was incredible. Uh, huge engine, huge intellect. Uh, the drive of a nuclear submarine. And the kid's name was Elon Musk. And Elon was working for Scotiabank for the summer while uh, going to Queens. And Elon and I hit it off, kept in touch. And he was at a company uh, called Zip2 that was essentially, uh, at the time it was revolutionary. Now we'd all sort of laugh about it, but it was, it was powerful at the time. It was basically an online Yellow Pages. He and his brother Kimball built that up, along with some other really good people. And long story made short, they sold that to Compact Computer uh, in 98, 99 for what was considered a, a handsome sum of money. And Elon, uh, unlike 99.9% .9 of the other people in the world, instead of going, you know, I think I'll go buy an island, um, immediately wanted to double down. And he, in his brief time at Scotiabank, had recognized that financial services was another area that would be profoundly disrupted by, by Internet 1.0. And uh, he and I hit it off. We got together, and I moved down to California. And he and I started X.com, which was the predecessor company to really what became PayPal. Um, and, and, and how those things came together, literally, you couldn't even make up. I mean, there was just so much talent in Silicon Valley at that time. 
you couldn't stand on a street corner without tripping over a PhD. And everybody was working 24-7 and everybody wanted to change the world. It was incredible environment. And what was your what was your role? So so you get there, you start working on X, X.com, and, yep. and, and and what's your role? Like are you are you coding? Are you God, no, you wouldn't want me coding. <laughs> um, I was president of the firm, and I knew, by this time, I knew enough about, I knew a lot about financial services. Um, Elon knew nothing about financial services, but again, with his audacity and his ability to articulate a vision that people get behind, you know, it was a pretty interesting combination. And then, unfortunately, we parted ways in mid-99. It just, he had a very different operating style with people than, than do I. And I, I was just in the life's too short camp. Um, he's obviously done pretty well since. <laughs> but uh, um, Does it surprise you how well no, he's done? No, God, no. No. Um, Have you ever met anyone else who operates on his level? Depends what his level is. His, his intellect is obviously very powerful. It's not genius. I've met people who are genius, and when you meet them, you're you're humbled in the extreme. Um, it's his will to win. And Elon's greatest strength, he is the single best salesman I have ever met, and you don't realize you're being sold. That's, that's what a great salesperson does. So he's so scientific in his delivery, and the comparisons he makes are so compelling, but you're, you're just not expecting to hear that comparison made. And then he causes a light to go off in your brain, and you go, yeah, let's go to Mars. Or let's do the Hyperloop. Let's, let's do Tesla. Um, so no, I, I wasn't surprised at all. Um, that strength of will combined with that intellect. Um, he, you know, for Elon, look, it's gonna be a zero or a one. It's gonna be binary. Uh, there's no middle ground, and he will run that rocket ship either into the upper stratosphere <laughs> and beyond or straight into the tarmac. But from a talent and drive perspective, you know, very rare guy. Yeah. And so, and so, so after X.com, mm. you, I believe you started your own yeah. financial services like online platform? Yeah, I met two incredible people who had nothing. The Ashley Vance book, I, 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 you know, people told me about it, and I'm in there, and apparently I, I tried to stage some coup at X.com, like, I like disruption, but I'm not suicidal. So I started the company with uh, two people who had nothing to do with X.com, uh, who remain friends to this day and were incredibly talented, and uh, we wanted a, an advice engine not different than well simple. Um, we want an advice engine that could provide cost-effective advice to people of all income brackets where we could make that advice actionable. In other words, it's great telling a, a guy or, or, or a woman, you know, you should be invested in bonds and real estate and blah, 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 blah. And here's the percentages for an optimized portfolio using Markowitz theory and sharp ratio and the efficient frontier. Here's your sheet of paper. Go make it happen. Like, so we, we were, I don't know how we convinced Barclays, which was the largest index fund player in the world at the time, we convinced them to allow us to build, our, effectively build our advice engine on top of their funds. 
And, and they were so nervous about the internet and felt they had to be in the space that, you know, we sold them on it. They were great partners. They were, they were certainly not stupid. We sold them on it. It worked. Um, and, you know, that business, the only thing, the business, the business was just fine, but where that business would have been stratospheric is that business today, as we've seen what you would call passive management uh, come to the forefront, that's, that's really the driver. The, the thing that we experienced was we'd say to people, well, we can very cost-effectively uh, produce a very sophisticated asset-based model for you to invest, even if you got 10 grand. Um, and, and people go, well, what will the returns be? We'll, we'd say, well, they're indexed, so they'll, they will be the returns of the market. People go, well, I want to do better than the market. Who wants to do that? So no one really understood that, you know, the size of the fees back then were so large that you had to be massively outperforming the market, even pay the cost of the advice. So it, it was wild. It was interesting to, uh, to witness. But we had a great ride. Um, you know, Bob went on to become the chief architect of Oracle. Uh, Bob Phillips and Monica Chandra went on to become number three or four at Fidelity. So they were incredible, incredible team and very, very different uh, people. So, so it really was very similar to, to like the well simple model of, of passive investment for the retail investor. hundred percent. Yeah. And we're just and, ahead of your time. And yeah, but there's the leading edge and the bleeding edge. <laughs> I like that. We were on the bleeding edge. We, we, we would have had to wait a decade for the leading edge. So timing is everything. Yeah. And then when I, I was done that gig, I was going to move to New York. I keep almost moving to New York. And, uh, I met uh, our good friend and uh, my predecessor, CEO here, Kevin Sullivan, and he was telling me what was happening at uh, GMP. And um, I knew a lot of the guys here had a tremendous respect for the team and ended up here in 02 in investment banking. And um, my first year here, I made 47 grand, uh, which is not a lot of money in the investment banking world. And I was very um, determined to... How did you only make 47 grand? Because I wouldn't do deals that I didn't think were like... So you had your own team? You were running a team? Nope. I was just me. I had me and one guy, a VP, who has gone on to become a great banker himself. And uh, um, I came from... I had spent time at Burns Fry with some of the best investment bankers I've ever worked with. And they had a, a methodology and a discipline for building a client base. And uh, it took me 18 months. Everyone thought I was a total dud. It took me 18 months to generate my first real deal. But it was a deal I felt great about. And I loved working with the company. 18 months. Like how hard is it to, to be so convinced in your path when it looks like it's failing for 18 months and to stay on that? 18 months to me doesn't seem like a heck of a long time. Sure. I, I think the experiences I've had in my life uh, have developed a high degree of conviction in do the right thing. Now, you can make that very complex, but I think you inevitably know what the right thing is. 
And then what you'll do is you'll talk yourself out of it for a bunch of reasons that seem real, but I did the right thing. I built a very good business and I had a ball of fun and helped some incredibly good CEOs get funded and build their companies, which is very uh, compelling for me personally. And most of them are still friends today. Um, and then when I became CEO in 2010, um, you know, it was a whole different set of objectives and challenges. Um, and here we sit today. And, and you're still applying that methodology of, of keeping it simple and doing things that feel right, doing the right thing. Yeah. Yeah. Like I, this summer I was having dinner with my oldest son, who's a great kid. And he was like telling me that, you know, dad, I'm sorry I didn't get a summer job. I just got really busy. And I said, well, it's not a problem. You would have had to quit in July anyway. And he said, why would I have had to quit in July? I said, because you're going to be paddling a canoe for 32 days up the Missinabe River without word bound. No electronics, no bed, no friends. Um, and you're going to get to know who you are as a 17-year-old. Um, so I've tried to impart uh, that to my oldest son. I'll do the same with my younger son when he's ready. Um, but yeah, I just believe in those fundamentals. Absolutely. If he were to come to you and ask for advice on his career, right? If he's thinking about going to investment banking like you, what advice would you give him? And, and on the second part of that, like what does investment banking look like in 2030, 2040? How, how does it look different today with given the, the backdrop of blockchain and all these digital transformations happening? I, a lot of people say it, I'll say it and I fundamentally believe it, I could care less what my kid does. I don't care. Um, long as he uh, feels fulfilled in what he's doing. Now, if he tells me he wants to become a serial killer, we're going to have a problem. But I don't think that's going to be an issue. Um, he's got to be a good member of society. Uh, and he's got to be, he's got to, he's got to be properly oriented towards honoring whatever gifts he's been given uh, in terms of his, his skill set. And then I would tell him, uh, get educated. Still, the ultimate weapon is education. Because education means adaptability. Once new things don't scare you and you start to find them fascinating, you can even be an old hack like me and still see the newest trend and really dive into it because it doesn't intimidate you. Um, so if he said he wanted to go into investment banking, um, I would have no problem with that. I would be surprised, but I would have no problem with it. Long as he's coming from uh, a base of education and he earns it. Um, there's certainly no, uh, I wouldn't facilitate anything that I wouldn't facilitate for any other kid. He'd have to earn it. Uh, in fact, my nephew, my sister's son, uh, wants to be a banker and is earning it right now in the city of London. Uh, and he's doing a fantastic job. Where will banking be in, in, in the next little while? Well, we've seen this incredible evolution of crowdfunding through what was originally known as initial coin offerings, where you had people who went out to the, the blockchain world uh, and basically said, maybe through a white paper, a lot of times there wasn't even a white paper back then, but it's evolved. Uh, look, we want to do this. We want to build this application. We think it's going to have this utility. 
and it's going to augment the blockchain world. So that called the, that caught the venture capital world completely by surprise. And if you're if you're an entrepreneur uh, in the technology space like I was, if you could raise dough and not have to deal with venture capitalists and give up all that equity in your firm, uh, where do I sign up? So that has shaken the capital raising environment. Uh, well, it's shaken it amongst people who've actually gotten educated. Some are just blissfully moving along, thinking we're going to remain in this uh, world like it is. So I think you'll see crowdfunding meet. I, I, I would describe the entire wave on coin offerings as what I would call tokenization. And tokens are going to be a, a whole new, vastly more sophisticated group of securities. Uh, most of which will be uh, will have to comply with the rules of the land, uh, but where traditional capital raising meets tokenization meets you know some form of crowdfunding, and then mix in the need to be compliant, really with any money laundering. The, the big bugaboo in the in the in the blockchain world on the crowdfunding on the ICO side is especially with the SEC in the United States and its reach, you have to be AML compliant. You have to ensure that that investor is not using the proceeds of crime or terrorism, um, is not funding terrorism or is not using terrorist money. And the United States will literally go to any end to ensure that's the case. So we'll see tokens move into what are called security tokens. That's already underway, um, but the ICO has changed everything from the capital raising perspective, and I just see—I think we'll see ultimately corporations raising capital in vastly more sophisticated ways than we do today. You know, you're a, a busy guy. You work hard. You have you have two sons. I'm sure you, you try and entertain a social life as well. How, how do you view with all that time? How do you view giving back and, and philanthropy? Um, you, again, pick something that matters to you. So uh, street youth, disadvantaged, uh, you know, youth just resonate with me. So I got involved with Covenant House, God, 10 years ago. Uh, I, loved, I loved the team. I loved, I loved their message. I love that they were right out on the front line fighting for these kids. And... Um, I got to know, know what they do, um, and I said, you know, I certainly don't have much value to add in telling them how to run Covenant House, but I can help them raise money. And that's what I focused on, is working with uh, their team. And uh, GMP's been a huge supporter of Covenant House because, again, our firm by its nature is disruptive. Mm -hmm. You know, we compete against the Canadian banks. Uh, that's, that's, that's a daunting task um, given how they are funded versus how we are funded. Um, so there's natural, there's, there's disruption in our DNA at this firm. And we just liked how Covenant House uh, reaches out for the kid who's homeless. Absolutely. Yeah, it's been great. 
we uh, we did an interview with uh, Sam Dubok on our podcast a, a while mm-hmm. back in season one, and he mentioned uh, the most important thing for him is, is providing equal opportunity. And I feel like that's something that that it sounds like aligns with with what you're looking to accomplish, um, and providing that through the Covenant House. Yeah, Covenant House is uh, goes back to my old days of reading about Archimedes. You're handing that kid a lever. That's what you're doing, and. Covenant House is focused on two things uh, out, of the, out of the blocks. It's um, health. So get the kids in a position where, you know, a lot of them are going to have health issues coming in off the streets. Some of those health issues are daunting. Um, get the kids healthy and then get them educated. And that changes lives. And support them the whole way through. Absolutely. That's what we've recognized at Capitalize for Kids too, right? That's the, the biggest thing is... You know, we could reduce stigma, which we're all doing a great job of, of mental health, but it's really now allowing those kids who need help to get access to the care that they need. That's it. And, and that's really it. It's staying on the front lines, it's rolling up your sleeves and making sure that those kids have the opportunity. No, we're, we're all about organizations who, who kind of roll up their sleeves and, and do that kind of great work. So, uh, no, it's been a pleasure chatting, Harris. Thank you, uh, thank you for, uh, for, for making the time and for, for sharing some of your, your insights and, and stories here with us and, and the listeners of Capitalize for Kids. Thanks for having me, and uh, I'm a big fan of Capitalize for Kids. Appreciate that, Harris. Thanks, uh, thanks again for your time. This has been a real treat. My pleasure. And that's a wrap on Season 2 of the Capitalize for Kids podcast. Thank you all so much for tuning in every week to hear from some of the Canadian leaders in business and philanthropy. We hope you enjoyed listening as much as we did making these episodes. This episode was produced by Eugene McCashew, and I'm your host, Evan Sequera. For now, if you'd like to learn more about the work that we do in the children's mental health space, feel free to visit our website at www.capitalizeforkids.org. Stay tuned for when we come back with season three.